Good to be here with you all. I don't know if some of you remember that uh, <clears throat> I was a speaker at the missions conference a few years ago. And uh, nobody told me that since then you have changed the name of the church. Because I've been inviting people to the wrong church. <laughs> because um, I, I, first I started telling them about the Holland Road. I kept telling them about Highland Road. They said, there is no there's a Highland Road Church. They said, maybe it was Holland. Yeah, there's a Holland Baptist Church. So that's why I'm sending people this morning. <laughs> Some of the friends who wanted to know where I was speaking. But uh, <clears throat> one of the beauty of the church is that uh, it has nothing to do with building. It's a meeting of believers meeting together, and that represents the body of Christ. So wherever they are meeting, that's where the church is. That's where the body of Christ is represented. So I'm glad to be part of this uh, morning's uh, service. Lord willing, I'll be with you next Sunday and also on uh, December 6th. Uh, I'm your God's choice because everybody else you wanted, they were not available. <laughs> so whether you like it or not, <clears throat> uh, I am God's choice for today and for the next uh, two Sundays. I have been... Uh, pastor of, a ch of churches for many, many years. I've pl planted six churches, pastored them, and uh, anything that can ever go wrong has ever gone wrong. <laughs> because it's such an Im immense uh, group of people. Because uh, on one hand, we have a group of saved people that are supposed to be together to celebrate the Savior. But then our sinfulness kind of uh, overtakes us. And each one of us become more zealous to think that we are doing God more service than anybody else. And uh, so Lord willing, uh, on uh, 6th of December, I'm going to speak on a, on a topic that uh, has been as a result of my all these years of pastoring churches, going through various issues and all that. And the title of the sermon is that what are some of the basic principles of church growth? And uh, it has something that I have gone through. It has something I've studied the scripture. And it is something that every church needs to visit once in a while. Just quickly, as uh, Steve mentioned, <clears throat> we've been serving in India as missionaries for more than 30 years. Uh, about three years ago, we were asked by our head office to come and work here because our donor base was not expanding as the ministry in India was expanding. We have the distinction of setting up the only created seminary in the whole of northwest of India uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, there is no other seminary over there. And it took us 20 years of work to do that. Uh, when I established that, one of the things that we wanted to do was the opportunity that I had to do my studies at DTS and UNT and other places if you could provide a quality education to people over there. Our capacity is 60 students. We comfortably run between 45 to 50 uh, students. And it's a small school, but a significant one. And uh, so that's why I'm uh, thankful to the Lord for letting us do that. The second major accomplishment was that we translated, that I headed the project for International Bible Society as the chief editor. Uh, the first time in the history of the Hindi Bible, we were able to translate from original languages into Hindi and make it into a study Bible. Uh, because that has been a remarkable accomplishment. It took 16 years to work on the New Testament, and then we just completed the Old Testament. We are waiting for uh, the funding to print the whole of the Bible. Uh, next Sunday, I'll bring some copies of the New Testament just to see and to show. 
But that has been an amazing accomplishment the Lord allowed us to do. But uh, <clears throat> there's always a struggle. I'm a ministry person. At the same time, also the president of Sikh Partners. So my job is also to raise the funds and to do the ministry. And I don't do a good job in raising funds. Uh, so my board said, let's find somebody we can hire. And the people that we interviewed, they wanted to charge $100,000 to come and raise the funds. I said, well, if I had $100,000, I won't need to raise the funds. <laughs> we are a small organization, but we have 24 employees in India, and a seminary, translation, church planting, and overall our budget is $350,000. And we struggle to raise that, but what are we able to accomplish with that much money, it's what uh, is something that somebody needs to look at and be proud of. Um, 30 years ago, Vinita and I went there as just two people, and now the Lord has multiplied the ministry and the thing. So hopefully, in the next few Sundays, I'll share a little bit more about what's happening and uh, continue to have you as uh, prayer partners and if the Lord leads, even uh, financial partners in the days to come. If you have your Bibles with you, and uh, you should, because this is a Bible church, <laughs> please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> I chose a very familiar passage for this morning, and the reason for that is because oftentimes the greatest truths in the scripture are found in some of the simplest passages that Jesus ever gave. But then they are so simple that we just kind of read them, go over, move forward. But one of the remarkable things about Jesus' teaching style was that he often used so many analogies and metaphors and parables and the way he did the question answer sessions and all that. Dr. Gangle has put together uh, at the DTS what he called the teaching methods of Jesus. And uh, he used to teach at the class and he has um, about this 85 different ways and the methods that Jesus used to teach. And uh, I don't know if you know that in the scripture, more than 100 animals are mentioned in some analogies, some simile, some metaphor to talk about that. And Jesus took the average, average everyday expressions and uh, different kinds of experiences that people were going through to make a point. The passage we just read he says in the passage in verse 13 of chapter, chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, you are the salt of the earth. Let's pause for there for a second. One time I ran to a liberal scholar who was tearing apart the Bible. And he says that, you know, Jesus' teaching didn't have any meaning or anything. And for this passage, he says, I think he was hinting his host that you didn't put enough salt in the food. That's not what Jesus was doing. If you needed more salt, he could have just asked for salt. Or he could have just said, be salty. It'll be salty. <laughs> but then we also go to some other extreme. I still remember, this is way back. I was a young believer. This was, uh, I remember the house. I remember the small church. And we had a preacher who had come from Germany. It was a big deal. Everybody said, oh, somebody's speaking over there. And this is in 1982. And that was the first time when I heard a sermon on this passage. This preacher was from a not only charismatic background, but he also was into allegorical interpretation of the scripture. So he starts off by saying that when Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, he was actually giving a hidden message what the believer should be doing. And then he spent the rest of the 45 minutes 
talking about that S stands for salvation, A stands for action, L stands for love, and T stands for travel. Well, the problem was that I was sitting there with my Hindi Bible. So I couldn't resist. After the service, I went up to him and I said, sir, my Bible is using the word namak. Now, how do I get salvation, action, love, and travel out of the word namak? And you know what his response was? I've never forgotten. He's saying, that's the beauty of the Bible. If you pray and ask the Lord, he will give you his own meaning for his word. So you mean to say you'll be able to come up with a new interpretation for that? That's not what Jesus meant. That's not how you study the Bible. Because I remember that number of my Muslim friends used to get amazed that I was, uh, there was a concept of, as a personal devotion, personal Bible, personal study time. And I remember one time one person made a statement. He says, how could you ever know? What your Bible says, because you have to have the priest, the mullah, to translate for you or give you the message of the day. I said, what do you mean? He says, when we go to the mosque, we don't know what that passage means for that day. Only the mullah knows and only he'll be able to give. Now, the interpretation of the mullah depended upon whether he had the Chinese food the night before or the Mexican food. The more hallucination, the more weird the interpretation. No, when Jesus gave this analogy, when he said that you're the salt of the earth, all that he's saying in a simple word, look at the properties of the salt. As the salt behaves, that's what you're supposed to behave in this world. Now, if you're here, anybody with any knowledge of the chemistry, my, 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 my bachelor's degree was in applied mathematics. And one of the use was the use of uh, for math in chemistry. But my daughter, who did her bachelor at Baylor in a major program in biochemistry, so she explained to me that she's studying the chemistry of biology, as I'm feeling dizzy right there. And now she's working towards her PhD, and she is a super freak when it comes to chemistry. When we call her a nerd, she takes it as a compliment. But uh, she can sit with you and talk about chemistry day and night and never get tired of it. A simple analogy, a simple comparison. And she's the one who pointed out to me that salt, basic salt, is used in 14,000 different ways. So if you want to look at and study this passage, when Jesus said that what property salt has, and that's what I want you to have in this earth, there are 14,000 different ways. I'm not going to talk about the 14,000, but I will talk about the key five this morning. And as you also know, the salt is made of two compounds, sodium and calcium. Oh, sodium chloride, not calcium, chloride, sodium chloride. Oftentimes, people make a mistake that they equate sodium with salt. You know, when you read the package, it says how much of salt, sodium it has, how much sodium you can consume per day. People often think, oh, that's the amount of salt I'm supposed to eat. No, wrong. Salt only has 40% sodium. So here's the good news. You can eat twice the amount, what's written there, as a sodium. Average person is supposed to consume 2,300 milligrams of sodium per day, not salt. Salt is a lot more. But we tend to use more than 4,000 per day. 
Now, one of the qualities of salt is that it's highly soluble in water. And because of chloride, it mixes up with anything and everything, so it's very easy to interact with anything that comes its way. So when Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, what did he really mean? He says, look at the properties of the salt. And let's look at them. I'm going to talk about five this morning because we'll take up the second half of this passage next Sunday, which talks about the light of the world. The first and the basic property of a salt that we all are familiar with is used for flavoring. You know, my wife, uh, when Indian food, if you ever had, each Indian dish takes about 15, 16 different spices at a different time. It's a very intricate job to make the, make the food. To not confuse people here, so they introduced a spice called curry, which they dump everything over there, and they said, here, here's an Indian food. That, there's no such thing as a curry powder in India. It has all the ingredients that are supposed to be, but when you're cooking Indian food, what goes when and after what is what matters. That changes the entire taste. But you can't throw in everything together like a curry powder and see that what's going to come out is Indian, Indian uh, food. The point I'm trying to make is that when she cooks and all these different ingredients, as like any other man, when I taste it and eat it, I've never ever said to her that somehow you put a little bit more coriander, a little bit more turmeric, they should have been Lord Cuban seed or this thing and all that. The only comment I can ever make is, if it has enough salt, it doesn't have enough salt. You have heard that if you cannot put anything else, take a piece of meat, just sprinkle a little salt, cook it, you'll have the flavor. So the first and the foremost thing is salt is used for flavoring. As I look around the world, somehow I feel that if the, as if the world is losing that decency and that flavor that is supposed to be there in life. People want to run around naked with guns in their hand, and if they have their way, they think that that's the freedom. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's saying is your first thing is to bring that flavor to society. That little decency, that love and the care that when you are present over there, somebody says, ah, so good to have you back. I remember one day my daughter came home from school. She, they were in India and she was really bugged by the fact that what a dirty language kids were using around her. I said, all that you have to do is just tell them, please don't use that kind of a language because I don't use that kind of a language. And see what happens. If not, just walk away from their conversation. As she began to tell, people often started apologizing. Even her friend said, oh, next time you catch me using such a word, let me know. I'm not supposed to use that because kids get into this kind of a language. That's flavoring. Not going along with the flow, but as a salt, you flavor the neighborhood, the community, the church, and the workplace that you work at. That as your presence, something is decent, something is good. One of our missionaries that we supported in Bihar, as Deepun Raj, many, many years ago, he mentioned that when they moved to Bihar, they were unacceptable because they were Christians. They never had a Christian couple in the town. And the house that they stayed in was on one of the streets which was one of the dirtiest streets. 
But as they visited different homes, they realized that everybody kept their home clean, but they'll take the garbage and over the wall, they'll throw it on the street. So the street is so dirty, and Steve knows when you're living there, you have to very carefully walk, but you go to somebody's house, it's nice and speck and clean, but they throw the garbage on the street. So he says that they as a family felt that the front of the house was not, uh, not clean because they often have people for Bible study and all. So they cleaned it a little bit so people can enter properly. And guess what? Some other people, to get upset with them, they started throwing their garbage in front of their street. Well, on Sunday morning, this is what their husband and wife did and the kids. They will sweep the entire street from one end to another end, clean it up because some people were coming to their home on Sunday morning for Bible study. But the street will be dirty again on Monday. So Punra said, if he cleaned it up on Sunday, what to his wife, he said, why don't we clean it up on Monday also? Then he cleaned it up on Monday, on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Every day, the street was clean. Suddenly, people started noticing that this is not nice. We throw our garbage in their house in front of this thing because they had to clean it up. Guess what? It didn't take even months before people stopped throwing garbage in the street. And that street was named Christian Street for two reasons. For the cleanest street, and everybody on the street was a believer. That's called flavoring the society. A simple act, let's clean it up. Let me see what I can do to do this. Not only for flavoring, but the second and the most important part that's used is Salt is also used for healing. You know, a number of years ago, I had a surgery on my throat, but I had a surgery when the cancer I had, two-thirds was taken out. As a result, there's a permanent discomfort in the throat because the vocal cords get pulled. So my doctor gave me a long prescription of these, these medicines you can take, and this symptom, that symptom, this symptom, that symptom, you can do this. But then he says this, but the best advice I can ever give you is take some warm water, put enough salt, and gargle. That's a miraculous, miraculous thing for the bad throat right there, to soothe it up. In the olden days, when a shepherd went out to take care of the sheep, he had only a few limited things he could carry with him. A staff, a little knife, a little rope, but they always had a pouch of salt with them. Huge amount. Why? Because the sheep got injured, the first and the basic treatment they could give to the sheep was just rub a little salt so the wound will not get infected. Many of you in the medical field that you know that that's the basic thing before the alcohol was came out was used to, to make sure that the healing process takes place. But more sig became significant when many number of years ago, I went to Bhutan. One of my friends whom I led to the Lord, he says, in my hometown, there's not a single believer. Why don't you come with me and we'll explain what this Christian gospel is. And this was in 1985. I had never, ever imagined that I was going to go to such a primitive place on earth. We took train and buses and horse riding and whatnot and finally walked and finally reached this remote mountain town. My first shock was that people don't wear anything from waist up, men and women. I said, wow, this is a culture shock right here. And then, the, uh, the, most of the time when we went to different homes, they were just picking up the leaves from different trees and boiling it for their food. And the only thing they could grow over there was rice. 
and that too of not good quality. So I stayed in this friend's house. Dinner time came. There was a rice and bowl of these boiled vegetables, or rather boiled leaves. As I put that on my rice, I discovered that there was no salt. And I asked the family, I said, could I have a little salt, please? And there was absolute silence. So I turned to my friend, hope I didn't use the wrong word. So again, I asked him, again, absolute silence. They all looked at each other. Finally, the grandmother of the house, very reluctantly, she got up. She goes inside their house. I heard her opening a closet. Then another something she opened. And very slowly, after a long time back, she comes back. And she's holding in her hand a wooden spoon, which you could think probably was made out of toothpick. And very carefully, she was carrying something. And the front of that small wooden spoon were probably three or four grains of salt. And she puts it in my soup. I thought, is this some kind of a joke? Or did I ask for gold? Did I ask for silver? What happened? I remained quiet and just ate. And next morning, I asked my friend, I said, what was the deal with the salt? Why did such a thing happen? He said, well, let me tell you. In this village, they never leave. They never go out of town. We have everything that we need. We grow, we eat, and we sow, and we make it. But we discovered that uh, the life expectancy of people was very, very short. And especially, they were developing certain diseases, and they couldn't figure out what. Until a number of years ago, the UN sent some people to study this group. And uh, they came in a helicopter. And I don't know if you noticed the big stone over there, that they, what they worship. And there was a kind of fainted picture of something. Actually, later on, discovered that that was the picture of a helicopter. They believe that the gods descended in chariot, flying chariot, to that village. And that's what they worship. And what they told them was that the reason they had certain diseases because they were not eating salt at all. So every year, the head of the family has to make a three-day journey to the border of Assam on a horse to bring back about 20 kgs of salt, which is going to last them for the whole year. I never, ever seen the preciousness of a salt and how important it was for healing. You know, the world is hurting around us. People just do not know what is love, what is forgiveness, what is commitment, what is hope. When Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, he said, you are the one to provide that healing that the world so desperately needs. I remember when we were growing up in the whole town, my mom's primary job was to find out if anyone was sick, if anyone in the family had died. Because that's where she said was the ministry needed, healing needed more to the living than to the dead, to walk into that. To visit somebody in the hospital, to visit somebody in the house, to look at the neighbor who's uh, not doing well. That's called being neighborly. To provide the healing that the world so desperately needs. Jesus said, you and I are to do that. Not only for flavoring, not only for healing, but the salt is also used for preservation. One of the basic preservatives for any food till today is salt. That's why you find salt in almost any food in can or this thing or soup or whatever has been preserved. In the olden days, it was the same thing. A small amount of salt could preserve a large amount of meat. 
without refrigeration. Same thing in India. Till today, one of the famous butter company, Amul Butter, the only preservative they ever use is salt. In fact, we have gotten used to the salty butter. We constantly crave for that. And uh, we don't want the sweet cream. You want that salty Amul Butter. That's another property. You know, when Paul was explaining to the Thessalonians and talking about that a day is going to come when the church is going to be raptured and God's terrible wrath is going to come. And one reason that we believe in the pre-tribulation rapture, that the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation because tribulation is a special time to bring back God's judgment on the people and also to refine the Jewish nation. It says there in Thessalonians that the restrainer is going to be removed and the restrainer is the Holy Spirit. So once the Holy Spirit is removed, God's wrath is going to come upon the world. But if the Holy Spirit is going to be removed, that means people who possess the Holy Spirit, you and I are going to be removed. Hence, the church is going to be raptured before the wrath is poured out. In other words, you and I are the reason why the God's wrath has not yet come and the world is still preserved. It's the believers. God's commitment is to his church, to his people. What the rest of them is getting is the overflow of that. A day is coming, a day of judgment when everything is going to be gone, but God is going to protect and preserve his people. But when Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, he says you are the reason why this world is preserved. Do you remember the story of uh, Abraham and Lot? Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew, chose to separate from Abraham. And he says to him that I want to go to the Green Valley. So he chose to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. But a time came and God said, I've had it enough with their sinfulness. And I have decided to destroy the town. And he informs Abraham that this is what I'm going to do. Abraham goes before the Lord and he says to the Lord, and he's trying to give a little theology lecture to God. He says to him, God, far be it from you that you will destroy the righteous with the sinners. And God says, what are you talking about? Abraham has done some mathematical calculation. He says, if I find 10 righteous people in that city or in those two cities, will you spare the cities? <coughs> and without hesitation, God says yes. But before that, what had happened, Abraham's mathematical calculation had gone a little bit wonky. He says to God, if I find 50 righteous people in the city, Will you spare the two cities? God says, yes. Abraham scratches his head and says, God, in case I'm shot by 10 people, will you still save the cities? God says, yes. Abraham says, God, don't be angry with me. If I find only 30 people, will you spare the cities? God says, yes. He said, one more time, Lord, don't be upset with me. How about 20? And as he's pleasing and bargaining with God, God says yes. Finally, he comes down to a number that he thought he can live with. He says, God, how about 10 people? 
God says, yes. If I find 10 people, righteous people, I'll spare the cities. <coughs> now, why Abraham is thinking about the 10 people? Because he knows that there's a lot. There's his wife. And then there are two sons, two daughters, who are pledged to be married to two guys. So, there are already six people. And let's hope that Lot has done his job properly to keep his family intact. And if they are still righteous before the Lord, and they have reached out just one more person each as a family. So Abraham is betting they're definitely going to be 11 people, if not 12 or more. So 10 is the minimum he can think of. And as we know the story, in Genesis 18, 19, that goes on. It says that next day when Abraham woke up and looked at the valley, he discovered great smoke rising up and both the cities were destroyed. If I were to ask you a question, why were Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? The first obvious answer feels that they were destroyed because of sinful cities. They were such an abomination to God. God destroyed them. No, but the right answer is, because God could not find even 10 righteous people on whose account he was willing to spare the cities. Tomorrow, if Dallas, Fort Worth, or New Delhi, or the world is going to be destroyed, it's not because of the sinfulness of others. It's going to be because of the lack of his own people that he could not find enough righteous people on whose account he's willing to spare the city, the nation, or the world. Because we have failed to preserve. We have failed to give reason to God that others could be saved. And God says that judgment is coming. But right now you and I are preserving our cities and preserving our neighborhood and preserving our country. But one day if he runs out of inner people, the judgment will come. The fourth one, obvious quantity, quality of salt is it makes us thirsty. I remember I was very young when I used to go to these army big dinners and parties with my dad. He was an army officer. And uh, every time I went there, there's a lot of food, a lot of fun to enjoy. I went to this one large dinner, and I found that everyone was in this corner to go for food. But there were plenty of room, but nobody was in that corner. So I asked my dad, I said, what's, what's, what people are eating there? Because there are very few people there, but everyone is over here. He said, well, this is food. And it's all free, part of the fees that we paid. But that corner is the liquor corner which you have to buy. So that is not free. And as he's explaining to me, we start walking towards that, that side. And he saw me that on the counter in the front, there were lots of these bowls of different nuts. And I've always liked uh, cashew nuts. So there's one big bowl of roasted cashew nuts. He reached out, he took some, put it in my hand, and he says, enjoy it. I said, Dad, but you said that this was not free. He said, no, all this stuff on the counter is free, but you have to buy the liquor. I said, why? He said, eat them. I ate it. He said, they are a little extra salty than the normal one. I said, what do you mean? He said, the point is that you buy a drink, then you eat these free salty snacks so that you'll get thirsty, you'll buy it more, drink. Now, some of you are looking at me as if you have no clue what I'm talking about. This is not a Baptist church, it's a Bible church. 
He said the purpose of that was to make you thirsty so that you'll buy more drinks. That was the trick that the bars uses. Well, it was not too long after that, I got an opportunity to visit my dad in a, what's called Rajasthan, which is called the desert, biggest desert in India. And uh, the entire army unit only uses camel as their transportation. I was very intrigued by that because I'd heard about horses, I heard about tanks, I heard about other cars and air force and all that. But this unit was very proud to have only camel as their vehicle to go back and forth. And I had studied a little bit about um, in school that camel is called the ship of the desert. But I didn't understand the concept. That was the first time my dad explained to me. He says camel is the only animal that can go without water for up to a month. And as we were talking, we went to a few guys who were taking care of the camel. <clears throat> and he explained that God has designed camel in a such a way that under their neck they have this special pouch in which they store enough water that they can, don't have to drink for a month. I said, well, that's nice, but somehow there's no gauge. So how do you know that this pouch is full before you take a month-long journey? He said, well, we took care of that also because what you just said, many camels die on that long journey. So he took me to this particular shed and explained to me that what's the process before they'll take the journey. This one guy, he has a bag of something, he reached inside, opened the camel's mouth, rubbed stuff all over his mouth, left him alone. Then he's doing with the other camel, another camel. I said, what's happening? He's saying what he's doing is he's rubbing the mouth, inside mouth of the, of the camels with salt so that they'll get thirsty and then we'll ask them to drink water. And we give them enough salt that when their tongue is sticking out, they so badly want water, we lead them to this uh, watering hole and they drink so much water that's coming out of their noses and coming out of the mouth, we know the tank is full. So we can take the journey. Well, that's not what uh, God wants us to do, but when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, what he's saying is, you and I have to make others thirsty for the living water which only Jesus can provide. By coming in contact with us, they are supposed to say, aha, what is so different about you? Where did you get that calmness and comfortness and joy in the midst of all kinds of different, different situations? How is it that you are able to bear that disaster that's coming on you or the loss of job or the family or the kid? That's to make others thirsty for the living water which only Jesus can provide. I remember when I was witnessing with my mom for many, many years, <clears throat> I answered all her questions. She was a teacher of Sikhism for 32 years. In fact, one time I even said, I said, mom, you're a very, very smart lady. What else can I say or explain to you? Because you have read your Bible, you've done everything, you're doing comparative studies. So 15 years, I said, what else can I explain? Eventually when she came to the Lord, <clears throat> Someone asked her, what made you finally decide about coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? She says, it was the calmness and the joy that Sikwant had, which I did not have. It was like for sure he knew what the future holds, which I couldn't tell that. It was for sure calmness that somebody bigger than him was in control 
It was that comfort that he had that when he prays, somebody is hearing the prayers. And she went on and on and on. I never noticed that those are the smallest aspect of life that she noticed the most. I thought she needed to hear my theological arguments. You know, we think that the world has become very smart, very sophisticated. But actually, they're very paranoid. They're very scared. They have no founding to grip and stand on. Vinita is a five-friend that she has from grade, grade two. Three of them never got married. A smart lady, beautiful lady, so we asked them one day. And I was very intrigued. I said, what, what, why you didn't get married? And one of them explained one day, it never left me. She says that you Christians have some basis of getting married because your Bible gives you the definition of love and commitment and forgiveness. She said, my religion does not provide that. On what basis will I be able to hold my marriage together? And suddenly I realized that the world will not know what love is, what commitment is, what forgiveness is. In fact, the world will not, won't even know what killing somebody is unless the Bible told us that. 80% of the world's judicial system is based upon the Mosaic law. You ask a non-Christian, who told you that killing somebody is bad? Not your government, because your government got it from the Bible. On what basis is your therapist telling you that you need to forgive? For me, the basis is because my God has forgiven me so much, that's why I can forgive somebody else. But for a non-Christian, I'm looking and waiting how I can hurt you more than you hurt me. To make others thirsty for the living water that only Jesus can provide. And my fifth one is, <clears throat> salt is one for a pinch, it has the punch. You know, I watched my wife baking many things, cooking many things. <clears throat> And recipe will often ask for one cup of butter and one cup of sugar and three cups of this and four, this, what do you call, eggs and this and that and work and milk and all that. And then in the last, in the small print at the bottom, they'll say, and a pinch of salt. The point I want to make is that you don't need too much salt to be effective in somebody's effort that earlier. You don't have to have a bag full. You don't have to say, well, I don't have enough training. I don't have enough course in evangelism and missions. I don't know what else to do to learn about other religions of the world. Jesus said that only a small pinch is needed because that will serve as a punch. A small pinch to flavor, to heal, to preserve, and to make somebody thirsty. It's in the smallness of the thing that when we function and when we move, we discover that we are functioning like the salt of the earth. A very small quantity is needed. But you know what? Even if that small quantity is missing, people should notice. If you don't show up at your workplace or in your neighborhood outside in the yard or at school, does somebody notice that you're missing? Or are you one of those kind of radical things that people are glad that you're not there? Because that's too much of salt. You're rubbing into somebody's face. 
but someone ought to miss us. Somehow the flavor has gone. Some of that healing is gone. Some of the preservation is gone. That someone who used to make me thirsty for truthful things is gone. Because he's not there, she's not there. But Jesus does not end only on this note. The second half of the verse says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Except that it is good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot and thrown outside. So one day I asked my daughter, Priyanka, I said, what does it mean that salt loses its saltiness? Can, can the composition can ever go away? Because it's sodium chloride. And she says, no, it can never happen. I said, but Jesus says it can happen. He says, she said, this may be the explanation. She gave explanation, I did some more study, some more research and found out the salt is highly soluble in water. But if you put excessive salt, uh, sorry, excessive water and a little bit of salt, you will not even notice it. The salt is there because it dissolves and leaves a white residue at the bottom. But another property that salt has it, it very easily takes the chemicals of other compounds around and it changes its own saltiness and own taste. In the olden days, the salt used to be the rock salt or it came from the Dead Sea. And they used to collect it in the houses and save it over there. It was not an iodine processed salt that we have of today. And oftentimes, because of rain and moisture and coming in contact with other different things, the salt will become bitter. It'll have its composition as the basic sodium chloride, but the taste will become bitter that was not good enough to eat. So what they did, they used to mix that with a compound with which they used to make this tar, kind of an insulant, with which they used to seal the rooftops of the houses so that the salt that had become bad will go into this mixture which became a tar to use on the rooftop. And in those days until today, most of the parties, most of the function happened on the rooftop, which was the flat roofs. So as you're moving around on the roof, under your feet is that salt that people are trampling over, which is good for nothing, but has been thrown out. The point that Jesus is making is that if you don't want to function as a salt, don't come crying that the world is trampling over you. In my opinion, there's no worse person than the one who's a Christian, but trying to live a double life as a non-Christian as well as a Christian. Is the kind of person who has lost his saltiness or losing his saltiness just because he's trying to please the world. Jesus says the world is going to trample all over you. Don't come crying. And that salt, but had been thrown out, there was no way to bring his composition back to use it for other purposes. When Jesus said that you are the salt of the earth, he was not giving any mystical or magical message in that or a hidden meaning, all he was saying is, look at how salt functions. <clears throat> look at the properties of salt. And that's how you and I are supposed to function in this world. In fact, he calls us the salt of the earth. He says, you and I are the one who's flavoring the world. <clears throat> you and I are the one who are the reason for healing, for preservation, but most importantly, to make others thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we have uh, somehow reversed the great commission that Jesus gave 
Remember it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all other things. First of all, the command in that verse is not go. The command is to make disciples. The right translation should be, while going about, make disciples. So making disciples is the command, but then if you look at the order, <clears throat> what we do in church, <clears throat> we want to teach the world about the Bible, about Jesus Christ, and also try to explain Trinity to a Muslim. And then in the process, if they become believer, we want to baptize them, and then we want to put them into a discipleship program. But that's not the order of that great commission. He says, go disciple, <clears throat> baptize, and then teach them all different things. The reason because the basic and the primary meaning of that word disciple in the Greek is learner, a student. So what Jesus is saying that go make others students of Jesus. Just make them curious enough they want to know more about Jesus. And in the process when they want to know more about Jesus, when they become believer, then you baptize them. Make them part of the community of the, of the church because that's the hallmark of a church. And now that they have the Holy Spirit, now that they have the community of believers, now teach them all other things because otherwise they're going to be foolishness to a non-Christian. So the great commission for you and I is to be the salt of the earth. Make others thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to know more about him. And then the word of God and the Holy Spirit takes over. See, the job that you and I have is not to convert others <clears throat> to Christianity. That's God's prerogative because only God can change somebody's heart. Our job is how many people will be without excuse when they stand before God one day? How many people will be there who will be in hell who will say, I lived next door to Sikwan for these many years. He never told me about Jesus. Or I traveled on this plane and together we were on this flight for 17 hours. <clears throat> he had his headphone on. I don't know what he was listening, but he never told me about Jesus. But then there are going to be people in heaven. He says, you know what? I was struggling through life. I was trying to find meaning and purpose. And one day I ran into Steve. We both were shopping at the hardware store. And he was just there for five minutes. And there was something so different. <clears throat> and in those five, out of five minutes, three minutes he asked me who I was, and two minutes he told me about Jesus. That made me enough thirsty to want to know more about Jesus Christ. And in the process, I found him, and today I'm here because of those five minutes, the little salt that made me thirsty for Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth. If there is a hope for any flavor, if there's any hope for any healing, <clears throat> if there's any hope for preservation, and if there's any hope that others will become thirsty for my Lord Jesus Christ, it's you and I. But then the beauty is, all is needed is a small pinch to make a big punch. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your graciousness in allowing us to have your written word in which you have not only explained about yourself, but you also have given us a clear guidance how to live our life. You gave these analogies and metaphors and similes about our relationship with you, our relationship with one another. And in this passage, you explained about our relationship with this world. 
that why you have still kept us on this earth. Because we are the salt. And we ask, Father, that help us never ever to lose our saltiness. But to function in such a way that we provide flavoring, we provide healing, and we are the reason that you're preserving our communities and our cities and nation. But most importantly, we are the one who are making others thirsty for the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you are the only one who has the living water. May it be that every time we reach out for salt next time, it will be a reminder to us that that's how we are supposed to function. A living, vivid picture that he put before us. That we don't have to dig deep every day to ask, Lord, what's my purpose? You are the salt of the earth. Just function like salt. So we ask, Father, that you help us to do that for your glory, for the extension of your kingdom, and also what is good for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.